Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob's newest book is a prayer journal revolving around the great hymns and their stories. It's called Then Sings My Soul, 52 Hymns That Inspire Joyous Prayer. He's also recently produced a video teaching series called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. For a 50% discount on this 18-session online course, use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout. For more information on these and other resources, check out his website at robertjmorgan.com. Now let's join our host for a powerful message on the subject of humility. Here's Robert J. Morgan preaching from the pulpit of the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville, Tennessee. Today I'd like to talk about the dignity of humility. The dignity of humility. I know of a man, a, ma- a minister named Dr. Jim Baher, who was invited to go to the American Northwest to hold a series of meetings. And while he was up there, a lady came to him and she said, I wish you would talk to my husband. He is difficult and cantankerous. He's very successful in life, but he's hard to get along with and nobody likes him, including me. And so he went to see this man. And the man was in his office, and he said, I'd like to give you a tour of this company. I have built this company from the ground up by myself. Nobody has helped me. He said, my parents never gave me a dime. And I worked my way through college, and I started with nothing. And today, it's a multi-million dollar company. I have 3,000 employees. And he went on for a while, and Dr. Bonher said, Did you really build this by yourself with no help? I did, he said. Well, let me ask you a question, said the pastor. Who changed your diapers when you were a baby? Who fed you when you were in the high chair? Who gave you those jobs that allowed you to work your way through college? He said, and tell me, who cleans the bathrooms of your factory and serves the food in your cafeteria. And there was something about those questions that surprisingly just punched holes in this man's pride. And he began to weep. And he said, I guess that there are other people who help us in life, aren't there? And the next year, Dr. Borher was back up in that area, and he saw again this man. He said he was completely different. He was happy and cheerful. He had a different kind of demeanor about him. And he had gone back in his life and found anyone still living who had helped him in some way, and he had personally thanked them. And he had also written a personal thank you note to all 3,000 of his employees, and it made a big difference in his personality. It's the dignity of humility. Now, this is referred to throughout the Scripture, but there is one definitive passage on this subject which is at the core of everything the Bible teaches, and it's in Philippians 2, the passage that Pastor Tommy read to us a few moments ago. So, I'd like for us to look at this letter to the Philippians into chapter 2. This was very much 
on Paul's mind. Now, during this series of sermons, if you've been here or you've been watching online, we've told you something about the background of the church in Philippi, which was in Macedonia, up in what we would call northern Greece. It was a wonderful church, and they were very dear to Paul, and Paul was very dear to them. And in so many ways, it was, uh, well, it was an a ideal church, except they were having some problems internally. Paul heard about it by the person that came and delivered the help that they were sending to him. There was division in this church, and some people had gotten their feelings hurt, and they were fighting, and things that sometimes happen in marriages or homes or families. So Paul addresses this in every single chapter of Philippians. If you know to look for it, you can see it. For example, in chapter 1, he could have prayed a lot of things for them, but his prayer for them was that their love would increase and abound in depths of insight so that they would make better choices. In chapter 2, he deals with it very directly here. In chapter number 3, Paul says, you know, I could be a very proud man. Here are the things that I could be proud about, but it's all as nothing. And then in chapter 4, he addresses by name the people who were the ringleaders of the different factions in the church, and he says, will you please get yourselves together and become unified again? So this is a real sub-theme of this book, and it shows up right here in this passage. Now, a couple of years ago, we did a series of sermons on the person of Christ, and I was assigned this same passage. And I dealt primarily with the famous latter part of this passage, but today I want to really focus on the first several verses. So let's begin here with verse 1. We very often sort of run over these verses to get to the majestic poem in verse 6, but let's slow down and look at them because every word is important whenever we open this book and we touch a passage of Scripture, then it is so extraordinarily holy. So Paul says, therefore, he is tying into what Pastor Tommy said last week, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, we usually run right over that verse, but there are four different advantages that the Apostle Paul says here, you and I have in the body of Christ that no one in all of the world has except us. So we don't want to skip those. I think that without doing any uh, injustice to the passage, we can say his intention here could be in English expressed better with the word since than with the word if. Are you following me? He says, therefore, since you have encouragement, and since you have comfort, and since you have fellowship, and since you have compassion. So let's look at these four. They are, every word is different. Therefore, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, and the you here is the whole church. That's the last part of chapter one. It goes on very clearly to talk about the context of the congregation. He was saying that as a church, when you come together, you have great encouragement from being united with Christ. 
And that's wonderfully true. I think all of us know it. It's why we are here today and why churches all across the nation are demanding that we be able once again together as we ought to and have the freedom and the boldness to do so. I remember when I was in college, I decided I would go to the First Baptist Church of Columbia, South Carolina, which I'd never been in a big mega church before, and this had several thousand people. So three or four of my buddies, we got in my car and drove down. Uh, Dr. H. Edwin Young was the pastor, and we all sort of thought he was, he was the greatest orator we'd ever heard. But I'd never been in a church that was formal and sort of liturgical. But you had to get there early to get a seat. And so we got there early, and it's a huge auditorium, and we got a seat. And at the right time, just at the chiming of the hour, here came in the handbells, the young people chiming the hour, and the choir filed in, and the pulpit party filed in, and suddenly a great anthem arose, and we all stood, and we sang, and it was all, you know, rather formal to me, and much bigger than anything that I'd been a part of. And then by and by, Dr. Young, powerful, wonderful preacher still, is pastoring now in his 80s, but he was a young man. He would stand up and he articulated so well, and he would go through passages of the Bible. And I didn't like any of it the first Sunday, because it was just different for me. You know, when you go to a new church, it's different at first. But after about two or three weeks, we were all just counting down the days to go to the next service of that church. And we needed that kind of encouragement during college. You know, it was a rough time of year. And so this was when I began to realize there is something about Sundays and about those weekend services and those church services that give us something that nothing else does. It gives us an encouragement. And that's why we need to gather together. There's an encouragement that comes from one another. We should look forward to it week by week if there is any or since you have encouragement from being united with Christ and since you have comfort from His love. When we get together, there's a great deal of comfort that we are able to give to one another because the love of Christ is within us. Now, I think Paul was experiencing this very, in a very real sense. You know, the Apostle Paul had been arrested, seized, thrown into jail. We don't know the details about it, but it was a tremendous shockwave across the Roman Empire, that the number one advocate, the poster child, the person that everybody knew, if they didn't know anyone but one person that represented Christ, they knew Paul, and now he was in chains. And the church at Philippi was very distraught. And that church loved Paul because, as you know, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, he had been beaten trying to establish a congregation in that city. So they took up a very liberal collection so that they could make sure they could send him enough money to have clothes and food and all of the things because you could take care of those things for prisoners. And they sent a volunteer named Epaphroditus that we'll meet later on in the book. And the volunteer came not just to deliver all of these supplies, but to be a humble servant to risk his life, to go into that prison every single day, and to take care of Paul's needs. That's comfort. Paul was expressing here the comfort that comes from the body of Christ. And the third thing he says is fellowship. 
since there is common sharing in the Spirit. We're still in verse 1. All of this in verse 1, our advantages. And the word common sharing in the NIV is normally translated fellowship. And this is the oneness that we have. The thing that unites us together is the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this the other week because I flew in from Philadelphia, and this was when everything in the news, every single headline was about racism. And we were all thinking and evaluating and and trying to figure it out and trying to be very honest about it. And I was thinking about it, you know, on the flight down here. And so when I got to the airport, I called for a ride and um, Uber. And so pretty soon here came my ride, and it was a fellow who spoke pretty good English. And, I, you know, I had to get in the back seat because things are different now with the virus. But, uh, but he glanced back, and I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Ghana. And I said, oh, I was just in Ghana last year. I said, it's a beautiful country. And his face lit up, and he started to squeal and to laugh and to hit his hand against the steering wheel. He said, you were in my country? I said, yes, I was in Ghana. And I said, the people are very friendly. He said, did you like people? And I said, they were the friendliest people I've met anywhere. And he just squealed, and he laughed, and his beat his hand against the steering wheel. And uh, he said, what were you doing there? And I said, I was speaking to some Christian workers. I said, are you a Christian? Yes, he said, I'm a Christian. And he was so happy, that fella. He was looking back at me. I was a little nervous about it and made sure my, my seatbelt was fastened. And he said, where were you? And I said, I was speaking at a big Pentecostal campground outside of Accra. He said, I'm a Pentecostal. He, <laughs> he was so happy. And we had such wonderful fellowship that I wished I had lived further from the airport so that I could have spent time with him. And I got out of that car, and I thought, I have a oneness with this fella from Ghana that I don't have with most of the white people in the United States. The ultimate answer to racism in our society is Jesus Christ. He is the one that brings us together. We have common sharing. We have fellowship in the Spirit. And then it says, fourthly, we have compassion. Since there is tenderness and compassion, and we know that throughout Christian history, this world has been impacted by the remarkable tenderness and compassion that the workers of Christ have shown. You know, a few years ago, there was an atheist uh, in London who had grown up in Africa. His name is Matthew Paris, and he's a writer, and he's… anyway, I wouldn't recommend him to you, but, but he is atheistic. But he went back to Africa with an atheistic group to uh, drill some wells for some water. And in his touring to see what the humanitarian situation was like in sub-Saharan Africa, he said, he came back and he wrote an article for a newspaper in London, he said, I am ashamed to say this as an atheist, but it is the Christians who are changing the face of Africa. He said, they're not only out there drilling wells and taking care of the sick and educating the illiterate, they are changing hearts and lives and society. And he said, as an atheist, I want to call for more Christians to go to Africa. Isn't that remarkable? But it's because there is something 
that surges through the church of Jesus Christ that Paul identifies here as tenderness and compassion. So, all of this is verse 1. We have some advantages, and those advantages are encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and compassion. Now, because of that, we also have an obligation. We've said that Philippians is the epistle of joy, but this is the strangest verse about joy in the book of Philippians. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, here, I don't know how to convey this well enough. Paul says, I've got joy, and I'm rejoicing in the Lord, but something is lacking. I am not as joyful as I ought to be right now in this prison cell. My joy is diminished. It is lessened. I could be a lot happier, a lot more joyful than I am right now. So, you have got these advantages God has given to you. You've got His encouragement, His comfort, His fellowship, His compassion. So, now you have an obligation to make my joy complete. He says, do whatever is necessary to help me to have more joy by being one. Think about the implications of this. It means when there is division, our sense of wellness and well-being and joy is diminished. If you're not getting along with your husband or wife, then joy is diminished. If you're not getting along with your family members, then joy is diminished. If you're at odds with people in the church, then that diminishes everybody's joy. Think of our nation right now, how divided it is everywhere, and the result is we don't have a great deal of joy in our nation today. Just turn on the newscast. You don't find any joy there. Everybody is divided. So, division lessens, subtracts from, drains away our joy. But when there is oneness, when you and your spouse are getting along, when you and your kids are getting along, when you're getting along with people that you love, and you know, and in the church, and in your community, when there is oneness, then it makes our joy complete. So, Paul was crying out to them, asking them to help him to be more joyful by getting rid of those divisions that were subtracting joy from their congregation because he needed the joy that would only come from knowing that the church that he established was loving each other. If you want to increase somebody's joy, let's say in your life group or in your home, just do what it says here. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. I wish that I had found and seen this verse before I have. I wish that I'd known this when my wife was alive. This is such an important verse. Our job is to make our loved ones joyful by our humility that allows oneness to flourish. 
So we have, in verse 1, our advantages. In verse 2, our obligation. Now, in verse 3, there is a method. How do we really do this? And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In other words, look at that other person and see what you can do to meet a need in their life. It's not all about you. In fact, it's very little about you. It's about how you can, in humility, serve the other person and meet those needs. That's humility, and it's a remarkable thing. Dr. Catherine Graham was the publisher of the Washington Post. You know, for many years, you probably are aware that she took it over when her husband committed suicide and turned it into one of the most significant newspapers in the world, and she knew everybody. I mean, heads of state from all over the world and everybody in the government, she knew on a first-name basis. And one day, somebody sat down beside her at a banquet, and this lady, Dr. Sheila Bethel, looked over at Catherine Graham and said, Mrs. Graham, you know everybody in the world, and you know the great leaders of our time. What is the one common denominator of great leaders? And instantly, she said, the absence of arrogance. The absence of arrogance. And later on, when Catherine Graham was on vacation and she tripped and hit her head and died tragically, she was in her 80s, but they, Senator Danforth had her funeral. He was a believer. And he used this passage here to describe her. And he said, that lady, she lived what she said. There was an absence of arrogance about her. Well, I'm not so sure that's true for all of us. I'm not so sure it's true for me. I had an interview last week, and the person asked me, they said, what one thing have you struggled with more than anything else in your 43 years of ministry? And I said, it's my motivation. Why am I doing what I do. And that always frightens me. There's a verse in the book of Zechariah, I came across it just the other day, in which the Lord said to the people of Israel, when you were doing all of these things, the feast and the fasts and everything, was it really for me that you were doing them, or was it really for yourself? And why is it that we have this innate desire, this drive to impress other people. We want other people to be impressed with us. Well, this is just the opposite of what we should have. We should be wanting to meet the needs of other people, and that is the method by which we go about increasing the joy based upon the advantages that we have. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking at your own interests, but also at the interest of others. That's the method, but you say, how in the world can I do that? It's so opposite of who I am and what I am. Well, that's where the rest of the passage comes in. We have our mindset. We have our model. 
let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. We cannot in ourselves exhibit or experience the kind of humility that brings the kind of dignity that reflects the grandeur of this passage, but Jesus can do it through us. And so he goes on and he gives us this great Christological passage, the single greatest poem about Jesus Christ that has ever been written. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the image of God, being God himself in his very nature, did not grasp at all of the prerogatives of his deity, but he made himself of no reputation. He became a servant, and he died not only a regular death, but death on the cross. He is the manifestation of exactly what this is talking about, and it's only by getting to know him better and walking with him closer and growing in our relationship with him and letting his life be lived through us by the Holy Spirit that we can experience the dignity of humility that this passage talks about. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied in himself of all but love, and died for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free. For lo, my God, it found out me. One of the greatest things about the Lord Jesus Christ is this unusual, unbelievable visualization we have of His disrobing from the majesty and the glory of His prerogatives and coming down into this earth to be born in a barn, naked and wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the hay and growing up to live such a righteous life, but such an ordinary life, walking through the dust, battered by the winds and the heat and the storms until He was suspended on the cross, and He died for us and rose again. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow above the earth and on the earth and in the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord Almighty, that he is Lord Omnipotent, that he is Lord Omniscient, that He is matchless Lord, that He is eternal Lord, that He is the saving Lord, and that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. That is the dignity of humility. And to that, somehow, we are called. Dear Lord, our God and our Heavenly Father, none of us can touch this passage without saying, Dear Lord, You do this in us. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His grace controlling all I do and say. 
May the Word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through His power. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, self-abasing, Christ-exalting. This is victory. Lord, may it be Your work within us. And now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, to anyone here or watching online who wants or needs or would like to receive Jesus Christ, into your heart as Savior, you're not sure about your spiritual status or your eternal destination. You say, I want the kind of life that this passage talks about, then just take a moment, and right now, wherever you are, just confess your sins. Maybe you're a child, teenager, young person, young adult. Just say, Lord, forgive me for these shortcomings. And then tell him that you believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then invite him to come into your heart and life permanently to be your Savior and to be the Lord of all. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.